Michael Ostrunk here with Kurt Couchman. He is Vice President of Public Policy for Defense Priorities. How you doing, Kurt? Good. How you doing? Good, good. Thanks so, for having me. I appreciate uh, it. It's great to great to have you on board. Um, so this is it's 2017, and we have the United States has combat operations in Syria, in Somalia, Iraq, Libya, and other places around the globe. Uh, the justification by this administration and previous administrations is the Afghanistan War, uh, AUMF, 2001, and then the, the Iraq War, 2003, AUMF. Um, I believe you believe that's not appropriate. So why don't we start there? What do you think this administration should actually do, or, or actually Congress should actually do, in terms of reclaiming its war power authority and moving forward with these various wars we're fighting specific to ISIS? Sure, this is a very important question. Uh, we are engaged in military operations around the world. The 2001 AUMF was intended to uh, punish and defeat the perpetrators of the 9-11 attacks from September 2001, uh, and that was deemed to be Al-Qaeda and the Taliban, uh, and so we went after them in Afghanistan. Since that time, we have gone after Al-Qaeda in many places around the world, including Somalia and um, Iraq to a certain extent, and uh, Pakistan and many other places. Um, but the, the issue is that so many of the people that are being targeted now um, may affiliate with an organization that perpetrated those attacks, but they themselves um, may not have been involved, or in many cases even adults, at the time those, uh, those attacks took place. With respect to Iraq and Syria, the 2002 AUMF uh, was intended for um, you know, the use of military force against the government of Iraq. Now that was the government of Saddam Hussein. That government fell a long time ago. Saddam Hussein is no longer alive. Uh, that is not applicable to anything at this point. And yet we are engaged in uh, a train and equip mission, and uh, that has a lot of different pieces to it, in Iraq, and it's also moved into Syria. There is no authorization for use of military force that applies to Syria right now, uh, or for that matter, uh, Iraq. Uh, ISIS is a threat to civilization everywhere. Uh, they're a dangerous, roguish group of people, but that doesn't answer the legal question of wh whether Congress has given the president the authority to engage in action against that group. So, uh, what Congress needs to do is get together, work in a bipartisan fashion, to decide how they want to approach the situation. Uh, there are a handful of members who do not believe that we should be going in and fighting ISIS at all and that we should let the neighboring countries deal with that situation. Uh, that is nowhere close to a majority. Uh, the majority, the vast majority of Congress believes that ISIS represents a clear and present danger not only to people in the region but also to Americans abroad and Americans at home. And so the will within Congress, or the desire within Congress, is to go ahead and have American forces assist, uh, not take the full force of it, but assist in taking down ISIS and uh, helping with post-stability um, conflict reconciliation. Or sorry, post-conflict stability and reconstruction. Um, so what does that mean? Uh, it means that the Committees on Foreign Affairs in the House and Foreign Relations in the Senate uh, have jurisdiction over this topic. Uh, it's an issue of war and peace, uh, so it's a foreign affairs and foreign relations issue, 
uh, making sure that our forces are capable of doing what they're told to do, that's armed forces. But the question of war and peace is a foreign affairs jurisdiction piece. So they need to get together, they need to figure out uh, what precise language works for members of the House and the Senate. Uh, they need to pass it in a bipartisan way, and uh, then the president needs to sign it. So you've got to get all the parties working together uh, to figure out what makes sense and, and pass it. And this takes leadership. It's hard to do. There are some people that are adamantly opposed to having boots on the ground, for example. Um, there are some people that want to have geographic uh, limitations. Uh, let's limit this to Iraq and Syria with respect to ISIS. And al-Qaeda is a little trickier because they're in so many other places. Uh, the Taliban is Afghanistan and Pakistan. Um, there's also a question of defining uh, the adversaries. Are we talking about uh, something that's very loose, vague, and indeterminate, as we had with the 2001 AUMF? Um, associated forces wasn't well defined. Um, but then... Contrary to that, there's uh, the, the idea that, well, whatever restrictions we put on the president, they wouldn't be enforceable anyway, so let's just focus on you know, getting something out there so that Congress is playing a role uh, in these decisions again. Probably the most important thing, and there, there does seem to be uh, at least a certain amount of support for it in a, in a bipartisan way, is to have a sunset. Now, it's not clear what the appropriate sunset should be. I've heard people say 10 years. I've heard people say three years. Uh, whatever that number is, it's important for Congress to come back and reassess because that's been one of the problems with the 2001 and 2002 AUMFs is that they didn't have a sunset and so they could exist in perpetuity. The, the direction that members and staff that I've talked to want to go is to repeal and replace both the 2001 and the 2002 AUMFs with one that is actually crafted for current circumstances. Now, couldn't the argument be made that why would you sunset it? You don't want to end it until it's over. Why would you actually put into law a sunset, a particular date in mind, that the Congress has to come back to reauthorize a particular war? Yeah, that's a great question. The uh, There are those who would say you shouldn't have a sunset because if there's a date certainly you have to get troops out, um, then the generals have to start actually removing people uh, you know, some weeks or maybe months in advance, material, you know, turning a lot of things back over to the locals, and that could be disruptive to the military operations. That is a real cost of having a sunset. On the other hand, there is a real cost to our constitutional order in which Congress is the primary body when it comes to making decisions of war and peace, as laid out in Article One, Section 8 of the Constitution. Um, we need to be aware of the the strategic and tactical impacts that a sunset would have, but in my mind at least, the constitutional order and preserving that has to take priority. Um, Congress doesn't need to wait until the last minute. They could re uh, begin the process of reauthorizing or reforming an AOMF some period of time before it sunset so that you don't run into those tactical issues. Um, so that can be that can be addressed. So you talked about that uh, this needs to be a bipartisan effort, right. both the House and the Senate. And I've heard both House and Senate members, uh, both Republicans and Democrats, talk about the need for an AUMF, particular to ISIS. I mean, specific to ISIS. Uh, are there champions that you're familiar with who've taken the lead on these 
on these issues? Oh, absolutely. Uh, everyone that I've talked to, every staffer, every member, they all want to do an AUMF. Uh, the question is, what does it look like? Uh, there are some people that have been working uh, to actually move the ball forward by introducing legislation. Um, Senator Kane from Virginia and Senator Flake from Arizona have been working, uh, or in the last Congress they were working uh, on an AUMF together. Uh, they introduced that, and I believe uh, Senator Bill Nelson from Florida was a co-sponsor of that. There uh, have been other proposals. Senator McConnell had one of his own. Uh, Senator Todd Young from Indiana has one. Uh, there's a House companion for that one from uh, Congressman Jim Banks, who's a freshman from Indiana. Uh, Congressman Tom Cole, a member of the Rules Committee, Budget Committee, and the Appropriations Committee, he has a version. Uh, and I think there are maybe a few others floating around. Uh, Congressman Jim McGovern and Congressman Walter Jones, a Democrat from Massachusetts and a Republican from North Carolina, uh, have been... Um, leaders in invoking the War Powers Resolutions, uh, privilege resolution in the House to try to force a debate on some of these issues. Uh, Barbara Lee has introduced legislation, she's a Democrat from California, um, to try to get more attention paid to this as well. So there are a number of members that are working on it. Oh, Scott Perry, of course, a Republican from Pennsylvania, now in a second term, he has a proposal as well. So there are members out there with various proposals on both sides of the aisle. Um, oh, Adam Schiff has one. He's a Democrat from California uh, in Democrat leadership. Um, so, uh, yeah, there's a lot of effort being put into this. It's just a question of getting something that can actually get a consensus of members uh, getting floor time, which is not so valuable in the House. You can put something through relatively quickly, um, but it's pretty valuable in the Senate. So even if you can get a consensus, you still need to be able to devote the time to it on the floor. Since this is a question of constitutional authority, it probably should have a higher priority than uh, it's been given so far. Uh, if if uh, most of these efforts are repeal and replace, and you get rid of the 2001-2002 AUMFs, and you make it specific to ISIS, then what happens to U.S. combat forces, specific Marine, specifically Marines, in Afghanistan as an example of a fight in the Taliban and what's maybe perhaps left of al-Qaeda? Are there conversations like how, how might you do things along those lines? Well, there's two tracks. One is to do a combined AUMF that covers ISIS, al-Qaeda, the Taliban, and associated forces, however, de however defined. And um, in Congressman Scott Perry's AUMF, for example, uh, it gave explicit authority to go after Boko Haram mm. and uh, Al-Shabaab, um, Al-Nusra, and a number of other organizations. Uh, that's the combined approach. You could also keep the 2001 version in place, maybe amend it so that that would have a sunset as well. Mm -hmm. uh, that's an option. Um, but you could just leave that one alone and then repeal the 2002 one and replace that with an ISIS-specific one. So there are a lot of different ways you can slice it. Uh, but, you know, you're right, of course. Uh, uh, the American people want U.S. Armed Forces to continue to go after uh, Afghanistan, wherever it may be. Uh, Taliban is a little trickier. It's uh, more deeply rooted in Afghan culture and the, the tribal society there. Uh, so we've, uh, the U.S. has been working uh, with the Taliban, uh, even as we're fighting them in some cases. It's, it gets very murky sometimes. Yeah, definitely does. Uh, you've talked a lot about Congress and Congress's role, Article One, Section 8, the war powers. you quite knowledgeable about Congress. Might be a good time to just, your background, why, how do you know so much? <laughs> Where do you come from? 
Uh, perhaps I should have started with this. And uh, tell us a little about Defense Priorities. Sure. So before coming to Defense Priorities, I was a congressional staffer in member offices. Uh, I worked for two members of the House, one from Michigan, one from Virginia. For the second one, uh, the Virginian, I was the legislative director. So by being involved with everything that's coming down the road, you get the big picture understanding. Uh, I also had a... Um, a pretty significant role to play in some of the, the rules and process debates that have happened over the last couple of years. Uh, I think actually uh, Speaker Ryan deserves some of the credit uh, for the budget process reforms that he was working on back in the 112th Congress uh, when I was working for a member of that committee. Um, you know, the process really does matter quite a bit in terms of what the outcomes look like, and so that got me thinking about all that in a deeper way, and uh, since then I worked with uh, that congressman from Michigan to get some rules, uh, some reforms to the rules of the House uh, actually passed by uh, Congress, or by the House, uh, and you know, if you know where to look, they're in the House rules for the 115th Congress. Um, so six years on Capitol Hill, I covered a whole variety of issues, including foreign and defense policy, and this opportunity came up. I met uh, the president and founder of Defense Priorities, Ed King, uh, back in August now, and uh, he told me about the organization. I thought it was an exciting new opportunity for um, a new approach to foreign and defense policy from conservative organization. Uh, and, uh, you know, the week afterwards, he wanted to talk again. I was like, I mean, I like what you're doing, but I don't know if I can meet every week, and it's like, it's a different thing, and I was like, okay, so then that started the whole process of, nice. um, you know, to seeing if it would be a good fit for me to be at the organization, and so on, and it was, uh, and it is, uh, I've been there almost six months now, and uh, so Defense Priorities, it's a new think tank, uh, handles foreign and defense policy, it is primarily focused on defense policy, but you can't do defense policy without getting into foreign policy. So we get into that. Uh, we're uh, all for free trade, free exchange with other countries. Um, we generally think of things as being in one of two buckets. One is efficiency at DOD and state to an extent. Uh, there's a, a lot of spending at DOD. I think it was $611 billion dollars spent by DOD in calendar year 2016, um, at least according to the new estimates from the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, 600-something uh, billion dollars of spending, and not all of it is being spent well. Uh, for example, you have uh, excess capacity on U.S. domestic military bases. Um, we're wasting money on buildings and property maintenance that just aren't adding to the missions. Um, the Department of Defense is all for uh, reducing the excess. Uh, outside experts are all for reducing the excess. The only resistance is coming from Congress. And not surprisingly, they have constituents uh, at those bases that are working and providing services. Um, it, it can be uh, an uncomfortable position for members to be in. But um, when we're wasting several billion dollars a year on things that aren't advancing our security, that means that money's not available for things that actually could, like more training, the readiness uh, crisis mm -hmm. that we hear so much about, some of that could be alleviated by freeing up some funds that otherwise are being used to cut lawn and uh, maintain buildings and roofs and whatever uh, at, uh, at facilities that are just surplus. Since you brought up BRAC. Yep, um, BRAC is the technical term. <laughs> it stands for Base Realignment Enclosure. Uh, it's been tried before. 
And I'm wondering if, if we could talk just briefly about some examples of successful closing of military bases and how the, the former base has been turned over to the private sector mm-hmm. for, or for other uses, and the concerns that a Congress member might have in terms of uh, you know, loss of jobs, et cetera, um, has been satisfied because there are new jobs. They just have to be private sector jobs or non-military specific private sector jobs. Right. So it's, it's, a, it's a good deal because you're saving taxpayer money mm-hmm. by closing a particular base and you're still not losing jobs. You're actually creating new sustainable jobs over time. Yeah. When you close a facility, there are always transition costs. Of course. Uh, now, there are a lot of circumstances that determine how well that goes for a community. Um, I've got a lot of family in upstate New York, and when the uh, the facility in Rome, New York, was closed, that was a big hit. That was, I think, five thousand out of about fifteen thousand jobs wow. in that uh, that little area. Um, but you know, New York has one of the worst business climates in the country. Um, it's really hard, especially in upstate, to create jobs because of all the regulations that are coming out of Albany. You know, New York City, they've got a great thing going on. The marketing, the financial sector, um, the burdens of those regulations on, on land use, on water, on everything else, um, they just don't really impact uh, New York City in the way that they do upstate. Um, so I, I think that is actually kind of an outlier in terms of how things can go bad. It's a, a relatively rural area uh, in an area or in a part of the state that is disproportionately burdened by a bad business climate. Now, you can have other places at the other uh, end of the uh, spectrum. You've got uh, the Presidio in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. It was a military installation that was handed back over to San Francisco, and uh, it's incredible now. I mean, it sprung right back. The Naval Shipyard in Philadelphia is another great example. Uh, there's a city in Texas, I think San Antonio, if that's... Uh, well, there was a city in Texas that... Um, was happy to get and uh, get a base because it became their their airport for the city oh. and the, the previous airport was sort of running out of space it was constrained by development on either side and this base was a perfect opportunity to have a new municipal airport uh, so there there certainly are ways of, of making it better uh, getting um, the locals invested at an early stage and making sure there's a plan uh, of action to actually use the facilities, um, getting businesses lined up to make use of it. Uh, that's really important. Uh, there are also some challenges with uh, the transfer right now because of the McKinney-Vento Homeless Assistance Act of from the 1970s. Um, you have to go through a long process uh, to make sure that the facilities wouldn't be useful to assist homeless people. Now, I think, you know, everyone cares about the, the well-being of people that are homeless, um, but whether that's the most effective way to serve them uh, is an important question to ask. And maybe when you're talking about turning current military sites over to the private sector for redevelopment, uh, that may get in the way, and that may be uh, not the, right, the best way of helping the homeless in any case. So that's certainly something that's worth looking at. Where are you with BRAC in terms of Congress and the White House and the Pentagon actually moving forward with something? The, one of the challenges when the Obama administration started requesting BRAC um, was that trust for the president among Republicans was very low. Um, when Democrats held the House, the Senate, and the presidency, 
there wasn't much of an effort to work with Republicans on priority items. Uh, that led to the Tea Party wave in 2010, and subsequent to that, um, there were a number of times where President Obama decided to quote-unquote go it alone um, rather than going through the appropriate constitutional process channels and working with Congress. So there was a lot of distrust uh, with the new president, President Trump. There is not the fear that uh, objectives other than um, preserving and improving the readiness and capabilities of the armed forces uh, might be part of the calculation. So. Um, there are certainly a number of Democrats and some Republicans that have concerns with President Trump, but uh, I haven't heard anyone say that he's going to weaken the military or yeah. do other things that would undermine their capabilities. Um, so the level of trust, at least in that area, is much, much higher. Uh, and I think that gives the opening. Uh, also, you know, it's been, uh, it's been 12 years now since we've had a BRAC. The 2005 round was the last one. That was kind of a unique one. They did a lot of things that were atypical for a BRAC, uh, like realignment of a lot of different facilities. So that wouldn't probably that wouldn't be repeated. Uh, right now, the the urgent need is to reduce excess capacity. Um, that is a much cleaner process. It doesn't have the same level of difficulties that the 2005 round did. Uh, so I think th there's a possibility. Um, a lot of the members of the House Armed Services Committee have facilities in or near their districts. Many of them are specialized and they wouldn't be at risk anyway. But some of them would be. Um, the same is true with members of the Senate, and yet the Senate historically has been the one that has pushed um, BRAC on the House. Uh, my understanding is that typically it's been airdropped uh, in, uh, in conference committee when they're you know, working out the differences between the House and the Senate with the National Defense Authorization Act. That's not a great process. Um, if it's not going to be in the House NDAA, it should be in the Senate NDAA so that when they come to conference, they can um, you know, pick and choose from the different pieces where there's disagreements, and uh, that would be the appropriate way to authorize a new round of BRAC. Uh, given timing, uh, even if it were in the FY18 BRAC, it wouldn't be until FY19. Uh, and uh, another reason for having it in, in, uh, in or, sorry, calendar year 2019. Um, another reason for doing that is it's supposed to take place the year after the new quadrennial defense review comes out. Since the Department of Defense hasn't done a BRAC in a while, it might actually make sense for Congress to authorize two rounds of BRAC, one in 2019 and one in 2021. Um, the first one would go after the, the low-hanging fruit, uh, things that people know need to close, um, like the, the Pueblo Chemical Weapons Depot, it, their mission is to destroy chemical weapons. Um, there's a, a limited amount of stuff left to destroy, and the community wants uh, that facility to come back to them once it's all appropriately cleaned up. Uh, so that, and there's probably a couple others that would make sense to do as a first round while uh, they're getting staffed up, rebuilding their databases, rebuilding their capacity, um, and then do a fuller round in 2021. Um, that does more of the consolidations that need to be done, but uh, take a little more work to carry out. So we'll see. I mean, I don't want to say that it's for sure going to happen this year, but uh, certainly the door is open. Well, that'd be great. We definitely have to start somewhere. Right. Saving some money and putting the money back into, as you said, the readiness and training and other things that are actually needed by our members of the military services, the different branches and stuff. Um, you guys have a great newsletter. 
Thank you. put out. Yeah, I, I enjoy reading it all the time. Um, and actually, I send it out to a lot of folks. Um, can you tell us how to find, first of all, your website and then how to sign up for your newsletter? Sure. And just some ideas on some of the content you put out in your newsletter? Right. So we put out two weekly products. Um, we, come, we do one on Tuesday, and that is, uh, that's highlights of uh, recent articles by our people. And then typically we'll have one piece that's just really good and everybody should read it from someone who's not affiliated with us. And then on Thursday, uh, there's one that I write, which is more of a narrative form uh, with some of the, the issues of the day with our take on them uh, and some good links to data sources, um, to uh, other articles, to studies, to CBO or GAO reports. Lots of different things get linked in there. Uh, but the objective is to keep the whole thing to about the length of an op-ed uh, in three to five sections so that people can read it quickly. Um, if they want to dig deeper, there are some links. Of course, you can Google things too. Um, but to sign up for it, you go to our website. It's www.defensepriorities.org. And there's a tab, uh, I think it's called Join Us. And you go in there, you enter your information. Uh, and when you do that, uh, yes, you do get put on our mailing list. You get two products a week, the two I just talked about. Uh, occasionally we have press releases or other things that will go out and you'll get them too. Uh, we're a pretty small organization, so uh, unlike some of the groups in town, we're not going to send you six emails a day. Uh, even if you're getting all our stuff, it's going to be basically three a week, uh, typically. So, um, yeah, the, what we include in there, it, it's it ranges from all over the place. Uh, sometimes I've talked about the procedural levers that members of Congress have to be able to uh, try to accomplish their objectives. Um, talk about North Korea and Iran and ISIS. Uh, we talk about the constitutional authority uh, with war powers. I mean, the president uh, is often said to have inherent powers as commander-in-chief, and uh, that seems to be a little uh, looser than you would get from reading the Constitution than the Federalist Papers, for example. Um, but yeah, we cover a range of different issues. That's fantastic, and I definitely recommend people check out your website and sign up for your newsletter. Kurt, thank you for your time. Thank you so much.